Good morning, I'm Pastor Brandon. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open to Isaiah. Uh, If you are new to Stonebridge, we have been spending our fall in the Gospel of John. We're stepping out of that for Advent as we consider the unique joy uh, that Jesus offers to this world. And and joy is, is easily one of the most prominent themes that we associate with Christmas time. It's, it's pretty unmistakable everywhere you look. There's uh, you know, the songs we sing, the, the stories that we tell, the lights, the celebrations, the decorations, the, the, the gifts even. Uh, even the secular world cannot help but get in on the festivities. You, there's not a, a restaurant or a retail store that you can enter this time of year without... Christmas having exploded in there somehow, right? The, the music, the decorations. Joy is an unmistakable mark of this season. And yet what we want to think about is the true joy of what we call Advent. And, and Advent is, is slightly different than Christmas. So, so Advent is that season of waiting and expectation that leads up to the arrival of Christ at, at Christmas. And And that joy of Advent is so much bigger than our holiday traditions. It's so much deeper uh, than any delight we might find in family or in presence, as wonderful as those things might be, because it's a joy that flows from and points back to Jesus himself. He is the centerpiece. And as we've seen recently in John's gospel He offers a unique joy to this world, a joy that's unlike anything we might find in the things of of the world around us, the people, the stuff. He says uh, in John 15, 11, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. So what does it mean to be filled with the joy of God? Of Jesus. What does that look like? That's what we want to think about. A joy in Christ that is unparalleled. It has no rival. That's undefeatable. It it rises above every life circumstance. A joy that's uncontainable, that it can't help but be expressed in praise, that's that's unimaginable in terms of what's waiting for us in heaven and the new creation to come. And all of that, all of that joy is rooted in the unmistakable joy of God and his faithfulness to send his promised king. That's where everything we are delighting in and looking for and celebrating, it's all rooted in God's faithfulness to send his promised king. And so that's what I want to think about together this morning from the book of Isaiah chapter 9. Hopefully you're still there, Isaiah 9. And, and, and this book uh, of Isaiah uh, was written some 800 years before the birth of Christ, which is pretty remarkable when you consider how clearly it speaks of our coming king. Uh, but Isaiah was written during a time when, when God's people, Israel, were split into two different kingdoms. They had been one kingdom, they had become divided, and so in the south you had what was called Judah. And the capital of Judah was Jerusalem, that's where the, the descendant of David sat on the throne. In the north 
you had the northern kingdom that was often called Israel, or sometimes it was called Ephraim. Its capital was in Damascus. I think that's right, Damascus? Samaria, sorry. Uh, the capital was in Samaria. And in Isaiah 7 to 12, uh, in this section of, of Isaiah's prophecies, describing a conflict that happened between those two parts of Israel, the southern and the northern kingdom. Israel in the north had aligned with its neighbor, Syria, and decided that, you know what, I'd like to take over Judah and put one of our people on the throne there so that we can be in charge. So, so Israel and Syria plot together to, to take over Judah, get rid of their king. It would kind of be, you know, if you can imagine like maybe once upon a time, Iowa and Minnesota were like one state and then they split. And now Minnesota is deciding that I'm going to team up with Wisconsin and we're going to take out Iowa. That's kind of, you know, not cool, right? And so Ahaz, who's the king of Judah at this time, has to decide what is he going to do with this looming threat from the north? And so God sends him his prophet to guide him, the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah tells Ahaz, you do not have to be afraid. You only need to trust the Lord. He says to him in chapter 7, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. You need to trust in the Lord. But Ahaz decides that he would rather trust in a king that he can see with his own eyes than a God that he can't see at all. And so instead of trusting in the Lord, he puts his trust in the king of Assyria. Now, Assyria was the, the dominant empire of that particular time. It was a nation who would have no problem coming in and just kind of taking out Israel and Syria uh, on behalf of Judah. And so in our fictitious scenario, it would be kind of like Iowa calling on Canada to come and wipe out Minnesota and Wisconsin, except imagine if Canada was like a fierce powerhouse nation instead of really friendly people, right? So, so they're calling on this, this huge empire to come. And, and that's what Ahaz does. He doesn't trust the Lord. He calls on Assyria he turns a deaf ear to God, but what he fails to realize is that once Assyria is unleashed on Judah's neighbors, what's to stop them from coming on into Judah as well? And, and that's exactly what Isaiah warns him is going to happen. The flood that is Assyria is not just going to wash away Israel and Syria, it's going to spill over into Judah and, and rise all the way up to their necks. They're not going to drown but they're going to come really close. Here's a map of uh, the area, just so you can picture it a little bit better. There's Assyria. You see this dominant powerhouse. And that little yellow in the corner, that's Judah. Uh, part of it's a little cut off with Jerusalem. And Israel and Syria, it just, they're just going to take it out, and they're going to come right up to Jerusalem's gates. The coming of Assyria is not the salvation Israel thinks it's going to, or Judah thinks it's going to be. It's a dark situation for them. Isaiah describes it in chapter 7, verses 23 to 25. He says, in that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there. For all the land will be briars and thorns. As for all the hills that used to be hoed with the hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns. It's curse language, right? 
but they will become a place where the cattle are let loose and where the sheep tread. It's basically a picture of desolation and desperation. As one author describes it, the land will have become so devastated and depopulated that, that cultivation, farming, will be impossible. The only thing they'll have to subsist on are whatever livestock still happen to be around and whatever food they can find in the wild. This is not the land of milk and honey they thought it was going to be. And, and why does this devastation come upon them? Because Judah's king, who's supposed to lead God's people in following God, ignores him and his, his, his people then follow suit. And as a result, at the end of chapter 8, Isaiah warns them that they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they're hungry, they'll be enraged and they'll speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward and they'll look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish and they will be thrust into thick darkness because they did not trust the Lord. I don't know if you've ever uh, disciplined your children for doing something wrong and then they turn around and, and blame you and hate you for, for disciplining them. Uh, or maybe you've done that to your parents. You, you warn your kids that if you do this thing, there's going to be this consequence. They do it. They receive the consequence and now you're the bad guy, Right? That's basically what Judah is doing to God. He has warned them. He has pleaded with them. He sent his prophets to get them to stop. They did it anyway. They ignored him. Now they're living with the consequences, and, and he's the problem. They're angry at God and the king he's put on the throne. And, and the reality is we can very easily continue to do the same kinds of things today, right? To, to ignore God's word and then get mad when, when we bear the consequences of that, when life falls apart, when, when things get difficult, right? And, and even for all of the joy of, a, of the holiday season, we can't escape the sense that not all is right in this world. There is a darkness and brokenness of sin and rebellion that is just as serious a threat for us today as it was in Isaiah's day. And as you're reading through the story, you come to a realization that, that God would actually be completely just if he just finished the story there. Like Judah had every opportunity to not put themselves in this situation. God could just end the story. If you want to follow this pretend God, this fake king, darkness and gloom, that's what you'll have. That's what you've chosen. He could have ended the story there, but he didn't. Praise God that he didn't. Instead, we have one of these beautiful turns in Isaiah's book where, where we move from warnings of judgment to promises of salvation and hope. And, and that's what we have in our passage where we move from the darkness and gloom to this promise that God is going to restore joy to his people. In chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. So we'll start with when 
when the light dawns, the joy when light dawns, verses 1 to 5. And, and look again, especially at verses 1 and 2. Thinking about what we just read in chapter 8, the darkness, gloom, the deep anguish that, that, that's coming, that they're experiencing right now under Assyria, contrast that with the promise in chapter 9 here. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali into shame. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. I mean, what a breathtaking contrast for the gloom and darkness that, that sin and rebellion bring into this world compared to the light that breaks through and brings joy and freedom. And, and, and specifically, starting with this Zebulun and Naphtali, and it's like, why specify them? Well, these are two tribes that were in the far north of Israel. And so as the first ones to experience the king of Assyria's sword when he comes in and takes things over, they too will be the first ones to see the glimmer of God's light break through that darkness. God is going to undo the sorrow and gloom of his people, and not because they deserve it. This is not the kind of story where uh, God gives them a warning they listen to the warning, they repent, they make their life better, and then God is happy. That's not the story at all. No, everything God does here, he does by his grace. This is a people continuing in rebellion, and yet the Lord, because of his mercy and his love and his commitment to his own name and his own promises, he acts in favor. He has mercy on them. He promises the light to break through the darkness. And the reaction, the result of God shining that light of deliverance, according to verse 3, is that their gloom is going to be replaced with joy. Gloom will be replaced with joy. Look again at verse 3. You've multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Four times in one verse, he talks about the joy that will, be, that will flow from him shining his light on them. The joy when light pierces the darkness. When we lived in New England, uh, the winters there were pretty, pretty comparable to, to Iowa, uh, except that there were just so many more trees, and often the power lines ran from the pole to the house. They weren't buried under the ground. So when you got a heavy snow, you could expect to be without power for two or three days sometimes. It was just a normal thing. I don't know why they don't fix it, but it just, it was part of how things worked there, right? And so when you're without power for three or four days, plunged into darkness, and all of a sudden, the lights come back on, like your heart literally skips. It's like there's joy. You can't help but react that way. Multiply that now by whatever large number. And this is the joy when God finally pierces the darkness of sin and rebellion. They rejoice. 
And, and Isaiah describes this joy like the joy of a harvest or of dividing the spoil after a war. It's a picture not simply of, you know, the end of a lot of hard work, you know, the back-breaking toil of farming or of fighting, but it's a picture of moving from fear to joy, from, from anxiety and, and, and the anxiety of whether or not we're going to have enough food this year to, to the joy of a full harvest. It's going to be a good year. To it, moving from the terror of war to the peace and joy of divvying up your vanquished enemy's resources. Like that, there's, there's, there's great gladness. It's a, it's a joy that brings rest where there had been anxiety and insecurity. That's the kind of joy that Judah is going to experience, that Israel's going to experience when the Lord does his work. And so what is the joy? What is the work that God's going to do that's going to overflow in this incredible joy? What's the actual light that will break the darkness? Well, if you notice the next three verses in Isaiah 9, the next three verses all start with the same word, for. So, so Isaiah is giving us three reasons of why Israel is going to rejoice so overwhelmingly. The first, and each reason kind of explains the one in front of it a little bit more. But the first two reasons focus on what's going to happen. The third reason tells us how it's going to happen, what our joy ultimately hangs on. So if you look at the first reason for their joy, verse 4, when that light finally dawns, the first reason they will rejoice is because Israel's oppression and slavery will finally be over. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. You know, we think of, you know, a yoke as something you put on oxen, right? It's this picture of, of slavery and oppression, the rod for his shoulder, smacking him to get his attention or to guide him where he's supposed to go, the, the rod for the oppressor, beating them for punishment. All of those instruments, Isaiah says, are going to be broken. They're going to be smashed. Israel's no longer going to face oppression. Just as God showed up in the days of Gideon to miraculously defeat the Midianites. That's what the day of Midian's talking about. It's that story, that glorious story in Judges where, where God shows up and does the miraculous to free his people. So he will do it again. And, and the burden here is not, uh, not so much like the burden of ancient Israel when they were in Egypt. It's not a, an overt slavery. It's more the subtle and all-consuming oppression that comes from living in occupied territory. So again, much more akin to the days of the judges, living under the constant shadow and threat of Assyria. You know, my uh, brother-in-law grew up in El Salvador during their civil war, and he remembers as a child that every night they had to stay below the line of the window in the house, lest they risk a, a stray bullet coming through and, and catching one of them. That's life in occupied territory, life in a war zone. Imagine the joy of the night when you can finally sit in your armchair after the lights have gone out and not worry about shrapnel coming through the window or something like that. 
That's the joy that Israel is promised here. The oppression is over. And that joyful freedom comes from the next reason given in verse 5. The oppression is over because the battle is over. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now that is a, that is a very graphic verse. That's a, that's a, that's a picture, right? Uh, what does... What do bloody garments rolled up and burned have to do with joy? Well, think again of the imagery. If you've ever watched a, a, a war film or maybe a, a, documentary, a documentary on the Civil War or, or even just like, uh, you know, epic battles like in Lord of the Rings or something, at, at the end of the battle, there's always these vistas of the slain. Like it pans over the battlefield and there's just all of the slain and all of the carnage. Well, something has to happen to all of that. Somebody has to clean all of that up. That's what verse 5 is talking about. Cleaning up the battlefield after everything is over in order to get rid of it. Which is this, again, graphic picture, but how liberating and exciting because it means the battle is done. And, and, and there's a sense even of, of finality in this particular description. One author explains that, you know, bloodstained clothing can, might be reasonably burned, but why destroy valuable boots that can easily be cleaned up and, and, and worn again unless they're no longer needed, right? Unless there's no more war, ever. It's over, when the light pierces the darkness, Israel's slavery will be ended, the battle will be finished, all battles will be done forever. That is the promise of God that he's giving his people. He is going to make right everything that's wrong with this broken world. Their war, the war that Israel's experiencing, the sin that causes that war. And, and we continue to long for that same joy and freedom, even to this day. Like this world, we, again, we feel it in our bones. It does not work the way it's supposed to. Every news feed is filled with some other tragic story of something going on in our world. Violence, injustice, the shame and guilt that we just carry around because we continue to let God down and we continue to let each other down. There's so much about this world that needs saving to this very day. But God promises a day when all of those battles will be over, the literal ones and the metaphorical ones, the battles that, that, that fill our, our world with injustice and violence and the battles that war in our hearts that break down our relationships with each other and with God. There is coming a day when swords will be beaten into plows and spears turned into pruning hooks because there will never be war again. That's God's promise. And in that day, you better believe God's people will rejoice. But what is the ultimate basis for that joy? What will bring an end 
to that war, to that oppression? What will the light actually be? Is this something that God's asking us to accomplish? Like he's just waiting for us to get our act together and to to end all of this stuff. We just got to try harder and fix things. Once churches finally run the right programs, or once people can finally get the right politicians in power, or once we put enough social pressure on the right corporations or institutions, then we'll have all of this joy? Is that? No, not even close. Now, while we are always called to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with God, the light we need is not a light that we find from within or that we can create from below. It is a light that comes from God himself coming down from heaven to accomplish what he alone can do in zeal for his own name and for his people. And that brings us to the third basis for joy, the very heart of our joy, the climax of this passage, verses 6 to 7, and the Savior that God promised. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace, of the increase of his government, and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, while those might be some of the perhaps most famous words of the Old Testament, even especially around Christmas time. When you think about the imagery of what comes before, what we just read about, this victory and liberation in verses 4 and 5, these are, this is not exactly the picture we expect to find in this third reason for joy, right? We expect to find... If, if we're talking about the end of oppression and the end of war, we expect to find the announcement of a king coming in power and laying waste to all of his enemies. I mean, how else are wars ended? One, one king stronger than the other. How else are slaves set free? But that's not what we find. Instead, we have a baby announcement. Right? I mean, it's just this anticlimactic thing. It's these building these reasons and building, and then you get to a baby announcement. What's going on with that? But it's not just any baby, is it? It's not just any child. And it's not even just a birth. It's a child who is a gift. For to us, a child is given It's the child. It's the one Israel's been waiting for. The child who will one day sit on David's throne and do for God's people what Ahaz failed to do and what every other king of Israel and Judah failed to do. To establish justice and peace. Not just with the surrounding nations, but with God himself. A child who comes into this world in the most human of ways through birth, 
but is described in language that far surpasses our expectations for any merely human king. He is the wonderful counselor. And we spend our days tripping around in the dark trying to figure out our way forward. This king is wise enough to show us the way. He is mighty God. He accomplishes his plan as God's very own work, as God himself. He is the everlasting father. In the ancient world, it was not uncommon for kings to kind of posture themselves as being fathers to their kingdoms. But here is one who's not posturing, and and he's not just going to care temporarily or imperfectly, but as the everlasting father, he will shepherd and love and care for his people perfectly forever. That emphasis on forever is big in this promise. If you look again at verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. It's not like he's going to come, bring a little bit of reform, then he's going to die and everything's going to fall apart again, just like last time. No, this king reigns forever. He establishes justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. We can rest because this king is not going anywhere. He will always be here to do what is right and make right what is wrong. He is God with us. He is Emmanuel. And then finally, he's called the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. And isn't that what we ultimately need, right? Isn't that what we ultimately long for? Peace. And not just that that momentary quiet when the chaos of your every day settles down and you have a little time to think. No, this is, this is a wholeness that comes from everything being made right. Everything being restored to what it was supposed to be, a shalom, a wholeness. Peace for our lives and our relationships. Peace for our hearts to be made whole once more never to be broken again by sin or its effects. For our relationship with God to be at peace, to know that when the Father looks on me, he's not face-palming or or shaking his head in frustration or wagging his finger in anger, but opening his arms in love. Because the relationship is whole. This king, and only this king, can bring that kind of peace. God does not leave us in the darkness of our sin and rebellion. He promises to send light, the light of his promised king in whom we have an unmistakable joy. And as you... Think about, okay, so, so, so how does he accomplish this promise? How does he fulfill it? As you work your way forward in the Bible story from Isaiah and start heading toward the New Testament, I don't think it's any sort of coincidence that when you get to Luke chapter 2 and the shepherds are standing on that hill, that, that they behold 
the light of God's glory and hear the announcement of the angels declaring the birth of God's Son with words that ring from Isaiah chapter 9. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And I don't think it's any coincidence that that Jesus grew up in Galilee of the Gentiles, that same region where God said his light would first dawn. And with the announcement of Jesus' birth begins the hope and joy of all that God has promised through Isaiah and through every prophet that through this king, God will establish righteousness and justice. Everything broken in this world will be mended through this king. He will swallow up darkness forever. He will do it in stages. So first, he will win the battle through his cross and resurrection. And that's already happened. That's history. But then he will return again at the end to claim his prize. There's a a sense in which we're also waiting for an advent of the Lord. Just as Israel was waiting for his first advent, so we today wait for his return when everything will finally be, be made new. And everything that Jesus will do to make this world right, he will do at great cost to himself. You know, in Isaiah, if you kind of follow uh, the promises and, and the portraits in the book of Isaiah, in the first part of the book, you have all of these promises of a coming king. And in the second section of the book, you have all of these promises of a suffering servant. And then at the end, you have these promises of a, of a conquering hero. And, and what you realize as you read through Isaiah is that it's the same guy. The promised king here is the suffering servant here, is the conquering hero there. It's all the same guy. And so the way, how in the world can a king be the prince of peace and establish peace for God's people? Because he's also the suffering servant who will give his life to make it happen. You, you look at Isaiah 53, where This king has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was a king we didn't actually want when he showed up. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. He is the prince of peace, and he purchased your peace through his own punishment in our place. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The joy of Christmas is not rooted in the commercialization or the materialism that has overtaken the season. It's not rooted in family traditions as wonderful as those are, or your ability to provide the perfect holiday experience. The joy of Christmas is rooted in God's faithfulness to send his promised king. The fact that he did not leave us in the darkness, but he entered into that darkness through Jesus and swallowed it up for us. And all 
everyone who turns from sin and trusts in this king, this promised savior, will know this joy forever. That is our Lord's promise. So do you know that joy? Do you want that joy? My prayer for us this Advent season is that we would find and savor that joy in Christ, our King. A joy that is unmistakable, unparalleled, undefeatable, uncontainable, unimaginable, fixed firmly and forever in Christ our King. That is my prayer, and let's ask the Lord to do it for us. Let's pray. Gracious Father, Lord, we recognize that it is so easy to lose our awe and to lose the joy and marvel of the fact that you did not leave us in darkness, but stepped into your very own creation to bring the peace, the justice, and the joy that you have always planned and promised. Lord, help us not become numb to the marvel of this Advent season. Help us be tuned in to this joyful waiting, this focus on your Son, our Savior, and would that overflow in our hearts that we might be filled with the joy of Jesus. Lord, it's in his name we pray.